Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We reverently sing of the holy infant so tender and mild, but what did it mean for God the Son to come to earth to bring the dawn of redeeming grace? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, God With Us, with this sermon entitled The Humility of the Incarnation which covers Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We are in the second week of our Advent series that we're calling uh, God With Us, which is uh, the name of Christ, the name of the Messiah, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We're focusing in on the doctrine of the incarnation Incarnation literally means uh, in the flesh that God came to dwell with us, among us, in the flesh. And so last week we looked at the mystery of the incarnation as we studied John chapter 1. This week we're going to be looking at the humility of the incarnation as we study Philippians, the first part of Philippians chapter 2. So let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, we give you thanks and praise uh, that in your profound goodness and in your love and in your grace, you saw fit to come and dwell among us. You came um, in the most unlikely of ways and you you brought the most unlikely of kingdoms. And so as we consider this morning how you came in humility Would you give us humble hearts? Would you give us ready hearts, soft hearts to receive your word? Would you shape us and mold us into your image? And would you do it for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. In the the very popular sitcom of the uh, late 90s, or I guess most of the 90s into the early 2000s, Friends, One of my favorite scenes of this sitcom is when Rachel, one of the main characters, decides to make a dessert for Thanksgiving, an English trifle. Some of you have seen this episode. She's not a great cook. She hasn't done this much before, if ever, but she wants to impress her friends, and so she gives it a shot. Things go extremely well until she doesn't realize that in the magazine that she was using for a recipe, a couple of pages get stuck together. And she ends up with an ingredient, not for English trifle, but from shepherd's pie. And she has one ingredient right in the middle of the English trifle that's not so sweet. So the scene goes like this, where as she's standing there with Ross and Joey, they ask her what's in it. They don't know yet that there's an ingredient that shouldn't be. I said, what's in it? It looks good. And she says this. She says, first, there's a layer of ladyfingers, then jam, then custard, which I made from scratch, she says very proudly. Then raspberries, more ladyfingers. Then beef sautéed with peas and onions. <laughs> then more custard, then bananas. And then I put some whipped cream on top, and she is beaming with pride. Joey and Ross just are looking at each other a little bit just befuddled, and Ross says, um, what, what was the one right before bananas? And she says, 
The beef? Yeah, I thought that was weird too, but then I thought, well, there's minced meat pie that the English do for dessert, so, you know, they just put strange things in their food. And then she tells them as she goes out to uh, get something in the hallway, she says, don't you boys sneak a bite while I'm out? And they said, oh, we, we won't, don't worry. <laughs> it's an ingredient that didn't fit. You know, with English trifle, there's all these ingredients that you would expect. Yeah, oh yeah, that fits. Lady fingers, okay, yeah. Jam, sure, custard, yeah, bananas, all right. Sounds good, whipped cream. Beef sauteed with onions, doesn't fit. You know, you think about the Christian culture, the church culture. Today, I'm gonna read a quote later that will show us it's not just today. It's, there's nothing new under the sun. It's been the struggle of the church for a long, long time. But there are some things that in the Christian culture today, there's some things that we get right, they fit. And when I say we get right, we don't get them right perfectly. But at some level, it's like, okay, we're, we're doing decent with that and, and that's consistent with the character of Christ. But there's one beef sauteed with onions layer to the church culture right now that is just pronounced and so very common that doesn't fit and is not sweet to an unbelieving world. So if we read the ingredients, as it were, for the Christian culture today, it might sound something like this. We have generosity and stewardship. We have care for the poor and needy. We, we have evangelism and mission and discipleship. We have care for the widows and orphans and pastoral counseling. We have pride and arrogance and for the demand to be right. We have sound theology and doctrine and we have sound teaching and we have ministries for families and children's and senior adults. Did you catch the beef sauteed with onions and peas? The pride and the arrogance and the demand to be right that does not fit with the character of Christ. It doesn't fit with what God would look at his church and say, these are the ingredients of what you live out. My good friend and um, pastor here in Atlanta for a long time, uh, Crawford Loritz. He pastored Fellowship Bible Church and just retired this year as senior pastor there. He was asked just this past week, in an, inter in an interview, he was asked this question, what at this point in your life makes you pound the table and weep? Whether it's the church culture or whatever that might be, what's that burden for you? This was Crawford's answer. I think there are several things outside of the church, but what makes me pound the table and weep about the church is what a lost world sees about us. Sometimes I think Christians have forgotten the audience. We're blaming non-believers. We're blaming a blind man for stepping on our foot. And what breaks my heart is our self-righteous mess is causing a stumbling block and lost people are going to stay lost. There needs to be a revival of humility and brokenness among us because our self-righteous posturing is actually serving as a barrier to getting people to Jesus. That breaks my heart. It's almost like we'd rather be right than to humble ourselves and be the gateway to getting people to Jesus. That breaks my heart. You see, the humility, here's the main idea of this morning of where we're headed in Philippians 2. The humility 
displayed in the incarnation of Christ is the very essence of the humility that we're called to as followers of Christ. The humility displayed in the incarnation of Christ is the very essence of the humility that we're called to as followers of Christ. What we're, what we're called to live out is those who know the humble one. And so let's read the text. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of, ser of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. I want to give you three things, three observations from the text today that... Um, that just help us enter into what, what is the flow of this text? What's the movement of this passage? And first, here's what I see first and foremost that just jumps off the page to me in verses one through four, and it's this. We have been given a monumental call, a monumental calling, or you could even say a, a monumental command. These first four verses are full of commands, Paul is, and even perhaps more than a command, Paul is pleading with the Philippians. If we had read the latter part of chapter one, one of the things that he had said is he had said, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then you'll notice that at the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter two, verse one, it's, maybe your translation says so, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Some of your translations are gonna say, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. So that's a connective word, right? That's connecting what's just been said to what he's about to say. And what he's connecting is, if you're gonna live, if you and I, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, if we're gonna live as those who are living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then this is what it looks like. Therefore, walk in this way. And this is what he says. And it's, it's huge, and I, I, I use the word monumental because it just feels so big. It feels so heavy. It feels so significant in terms of what he's calling us to. And he's pleading with them. He's saying, look, if you've experienced encouragement in Christ, if you've had comfort from his love, 
as the body of Christ, if you've participated in the Spirit, meaning if you know him, if you've believed upon him and you've received his Holy Spirit and you are now a partaker of him, united to him through faith in Christ, if you've had any affection and sympathy for each other, if any of that has been present, then do this. Notice what Paul says. Complete my joy. If, if any of that has been true among you, then complete my joy. How? And this is where it feels monumental. Here's how. By being of the same mind. I'm gonna, these are words that, depending on um, your Bible translation, they're gonna come with various ways of saying this. So I'm gonna try to hit a lot of them here to give us a full understanding of what Paul's instructing here. He says, be of the same mind, which means, uh, in the Greek, it means agree together. It means cherish the same views. It means be harmonious. I could stop preaching right now because there's such deep conviction that hits my heart and hopefully yours as to how poorly the church of Jesus has just failed in being of the same mind recently. Be of the same mind, agree together, cherish the same views, be harmonious, have the same love. He says, by being, how would you complete my joy? By being in full accord. Here's what that means. It means united in spirit. That's made up of two Greek words that mean together with and soul. So that we are together in spirit, united in spirit and in soul, in full accord. Another uh, person said it this way, commenting on this verse. He said, one in Christ in all desires. The church would look like that in humility, one in Christ and all the desires. Then he says it again. He started this way. He says it again. Being of the same mind, he says it again. And of one mind, meaning purpose and thought, that we're headed in the same direction and we're thinking in the same direction. He says, do nothing out of rivalry. Another way to say that is do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, which is vain glory or empty pride. Then he says this, but, but in humility, but in humility, humility is a deep sense of one's littleness, of one's lowliness of mind, Humility is meekness, it's modesty. Charles Spurgeon once said that humility is the proper estimate of oneself. Tim Keller has said in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he says the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. This is exactly what Paul says, because look what he says. He says, but in humility, do what? Count others as more significant, more important than yourself. 
That's thinking of yourself less, thinking of others more. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what Jesus did. He says, look, uh, each of you, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's not saying don't look at your own interests. Of course, we, there, certainly self-care is important. But look to the interests of others. Why? Because we consider others as more important than ourselves. There is no selfish ambition. There is no conceit. There is no vainglory. There is no empty pride. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's why Paul says, if you've participated at all in him, then this is who we are to be. Why? Because we're united to him. If you've believed upon Jesus, then the scriptures tell us in Romans 6, we have been united to him. He is in us. We are in him. The phrase that is most used for Christians in the New Testament text is that we are in Christ. We're in him. Therefore, he is living out of us. So when we think about the daunting overwhelming nature of these commands, of this monumental call, it's easy to then sit back and go, how would I ever live that out? That seems virtually impossible. And Paul's answer is, in verse five, the incarnation. Look at the incarnation. Look at what Jesus did. And then remember that he is in you. So the very thing that he did in coming in the flesh in humility, he does through you as you die to the flesh in humility. Look what he says. Secondly, in this miraculous incarnation. Verse five, he says, so the only way you live this out is you have the same mind as Christ Jesus. First Corinthians tells us that very truth. It says, you have the mind of Christ, talking to believers. You have it. Christ is in you. You have his mind. Are you going to live and think with the mind of Christ, or are you going to live and think with the mind of self? As one who has been redeemed and made new in him. He says, have this mind among you, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, what does that mean? Didn't we just say last week that he's God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man? But is Paul telling us here that he let go of the divinity here? That he became less God in becoming man? We said last week, no, that wasn't the case. And the New Testament scriptures continually point us to the reality that no, that's not, that can't be what Paul is saying here. John Calvin said it this way. He said, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. This is a, a, a Greek word that's used here when it says that he, uh, by making himself nothing in verse seven, when it says, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. What is, that word can be emptied. He emptied himself, made himself nothing. It's a word kenosis in the Greek. 
And what is that getting at? Well, uh, I thought about telling you a story. And for some of you who have gone ahead and listened to the latest Digging Deeper podcast, that I, interview I did with Dr. Brian Chappell, uh, you know the story that I want to tell. And as I began to write it out in my notes, I thought, I'm not even gonna tell this story. I'm gonna let Brian tell this story because he tells it so incredibly well. And what he's telling is this. I had asked him the question. I had said, how do we make sense of this? When Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, what are we talking about? What does it mean in the nature of Christ that he become less God? Because if he did become less God, then he doesn't have power over sin. So that's a problem. It means we have a powerless savior. If he's just human like we are, but not fully divine, then he can't defeat sin for us. He can't overcome the grave for us. There is no victory in Christ if he's not fully God. So what is this verse saying? And I asked Brian that question, and this was his answer. Take a look. Here's what he said. I'll tell the story. I wasn't going to tell a story. Brian tells it better. So you're getting the B version. So he tells this story about a missionary that came when he was pastoring a church in Peoria, Illinois. He tells a story about how a missionary came uh, from Africa. And he said that this missionary uh, told the story about how each of these villages will have a chief, even a king, they'll call them, in these African villages. Now, these African villages are out in the desert. They're, they're way out in the middle of nowhere where there is no water source. And so the only way they can get water is they have to dig these wells. But don't think well like we see a well. It's not just one hole going down. They have to dig these wide, cavernous holes that you kind of have to step down into bit by bit by bit by bit to get way down to the bottom where there's water. One particular day, someone had, uh, had been going down the side of these deep holes and the dirt gave way and they fell to the bottom and broke his leg and he couldn't get back up. People were coming around the top of the well trying to figure out how to get him back. He's in agony down in the bottom of the well and they're, they're trying to figure out how to get him back up to the top and someone calls for the chief. And the chief comes over and he's wearing his headdress. And, and he is, is the one of all the people, and this is pretty common in African culture, in these village cultures, that the one who is the chief is the one who is the strongest, the most capable. And so the chief says, I'll go down and get him. But in so doing, so, in so doing he takes off his headdress and he sets it down. And then he climbs down bit by bit by bit into the depths of the well and he puts this man on his back and he climbs out of this well with this man on his back. And the missionary looked at the people of this congregation and he said, at any point did that chief stop being chief? Did he lose his kingship, if you will, by going down into the well? Of course not, there was not one person there that thought he's less chief. Now, all he did was set his headdress aside. As Calvin said, all he did was conceal it. He didn't become less God. As Jesus went, out, went down into the depths of the well, of the dark, deep sin of the world to ransom us, he didn't become less God. 
He emptied himself, meaning he put his headdress aside. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, meaning he didn't just stay in heaven and say, I'm gonna continue to coexist with you in all full glory. I'm gonna conceal my glory so that I can rescue the ones back into glory. It's a beautiful picture of the humility of the incarnation. He humbled himself, but to what end? He came and downtown, uh, down to the deepest parts of, of the grossness of the world and put on flesh. But to what end? Look at verse eight. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah 53, 12, 600 years previous to Christ coming, the prophet Isaiah, he said this about what would happen when the Messiah would come, when Emmanuel would show up. He said, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The greatest expression of humility was not actually the incarnation. It was the cross. The gore and the, the father turning his face away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The greatest agony of the cross for Jesus was not the physical pain that he endured, although that was unbearable. It was the very one with whom he had coexisted for all of eternity past and with whom he had been in full union with during his time on earth, so much so that he said, I can do nothing apart from the will of my Father, is now turning his face away on the cross. So the greatest agony of the cross is the humility that Jesus, the humiliation that Jesus experienced, not as people mocked him, not as people spit on him, not as he bled to death and suffocated to death on the cross. It was that the very Father, as he is the Son of God, the very Father himself turned his face away and he was humiliated. And not once, don't miss this, not once in all of Jesus' time on earth as he was misunderstood, as he was mislabels, mislabeled, as he was destroyed, as the only sinless one that ever walked the face of the earth, not once did he ever demand to be right. Not once did he with pride and arrogance say, I am the only one who doesn't deserve this. You people are the one that deserves this. You should be hanging on the cross. He never opened his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the shears, he was silent. And he received the just punishment of sin and humiliation on him that should have been on us. The greatest expression of humility, yes, we see it in the incarnation in mysterious, unthinkable ways, but we see it on the cross in immeasurable ways. But 
Watch the end of this passage. Watch the end. Verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we see consistently in the life and in the character of Jesus is the very one who humbled himself to make himself nothing, who considered others as more important than himself, receives the ultimate exaltation from the Father. In his humility came exaltation in our humility united to him will be our exaltation because his righteousness is ours. His crucifixion is ours. His resurrection is ours. And his exaltation is ours. So that when he comes again, when he comes again in the flesh, He already is in the flesh, fully alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father. But when he comes again, Advent means coming. So when that second Advent comes, we will be exalted with him. We will be humble here. We will be exalted there. This is the call of the church. The very exaltation that we long for in all these various things on this earth, all the ways in which we want to be made much of on this earth, all the things that we clamor to and that we grip ourselves to and that we hang on to, God says through Jesus in us, let it go, be humble, let yourself be humiliated because in your humility, there will be exaltation. I'm telling you, Philippians 2, you see it right there. What I've done with Jesus, you are now in him. You are united to him. You will be exalted. It will happen. That's our hope. I told you I'd read a quote that takes the pressure off us, so to speak, that it's not just a 2020 and 21 struggle for the church to be humble. Andrew Murray, I love this little book. We only have a few copies in our bookstore right now. We'll have more later this week. You can order it online. Andrew Murray um, lived most, most of his life in the 19th century, in the 1800s. He's from South Africa. He then moved to Scotland, was educated in Scotland and in Wales, and then he moved back to South Africa where he, for the rest of his life, pastored and was a missionary. And he wrote all kinds of of. Uh, of of books and and pamphlets and whatnot, abiding in Christ, absolute surrender, the blood of Christ, the fullness of the spirit, the indwelling spirit, so on and so forth. This one's just simply called humility. He says some things in here that are are really profound and worthy of reading. Would encourage you again, just to get it and read it. You see how small it is. Listen to what he says though, in relation to our study this morning. He says, Christ is the expression of the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. As the love and condescension of God makes him the benefactor and helper and servant of all, so Jesus of necessity 
was the incarnate humility. Now listen to this. He says, until such a humility is what we seek in Christ above our chief joy and welcome at any price, there is very little hope of a faith that will conquer the world. I cannot too greatly impress upon my readers the need of realizing the lack there is today of humility within Christian circles. Remember, this is the 19th century. There is so little of the meek and lowly Lamb of God in those who are called by his name. Let us consider how our lack of love, indifference to the needs and feelings of others, even sharp comments and hasty judgments that are often excused as being honest and straightforward are thwarting the effect of the influence of the Holy Spirit on others. Manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, feelings of bitterness, bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. Pride creeps in almost everywhere, and the assemblies of the saints are not exceptions. Let's ask ourselves what would be the effect if all of us were guided by the humility of Jesus, that the cry of our whole heart, night and day, would be, oh, for the humility of Jesus in myself and in around me. Let us honestly fix our, our heart on our lack of humility, that which has been revealed in the likeness of Christ's life in the whole character of his redemption and realize how little we know of Christ and his salvation. What an encouraging quote. I jest, but man, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. I read that and my heart just sank because I thought, he's so right. He's so right. If we are a people who are proud, then we can very biblically conclude that we know very little of Jesus and his salvation. So we come to the table. What a great Sunday to come to the table. A hard-hitting sermon, a sermon that none of us want to hear. None of us want to be called out on our lack of humility and our pride. None of us want to see, to stare into the face of Jesus and see how deeply we aren't like him. But there's good news. There's beyond good news for the proud, for the arrogant, for those who demand to be right. And it's that there is grace and forgiveness in the blood, in the broken body of Jesus that is limitless to all. Jesus even said this. He said, I didn't come to save the healthy. I came to save the sick. And brothers and sisters, friends and family, we're sick. He's the one who makes us healthy. When we dine upon him, we nourish our souls with the very character, the very essence of who he is as we are united to him, not in these elements. These elements are representative, but by faith. As we take uh, the juice the, and we take the bread, what we're saying is we are saying, I'm sick, but I am running to the one who makes me well. 
I'm proudful, I'm prideful, but I run to the one who is humility, that he may well up within me and that day by day, step by step, minute by minute, by his grace that is just exuding in this table, may I become more like him. Because even though I will struggle, he will not give up on me. He is faithful and he is good. Father, as we come to the table now, would you, would you prepare our hearts? And we confess to you that we, so very often, we are proud in heart. We so very easily are not a people who consider others as more important than ourselves. Lord, as a church, we confess that so very often we are not of the same mind. Lord, we're not, we're not a people who are just very easily operating out of the same love that we, we struggle with being in full accord. We struggle with doing things without rivalry or conceit. And so we come to the table first and foremost confessing and just saying, yes, that's me. You peg me, Lord. But we also come to this table with great hope and anticipation and joy as we look back to your first coming and we see that you were the one who went down into the depths of the well to bring us out of the depths of our sin. And you are the one as we look forward to your second coming who will come again. And as we dine in part, as we dine in representative elements here of, of who you are on that day when you come again, we will dine with you in full, in the fullness of the presence of your glory. So thank you. Thank you that your, your table, the Lord's table, reminds us that we are forgiven, that there is grace upon grace upon grace. Would you meet with us now? First Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul set, set some guidelines for this table. One of the things he said is this, he said, he gave a warning. He said, um, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We always want to be really careful to make sure that that's clear from God's word. We take this very seriously. If you're someone that uh, doesn't proclaim faith in Christ, we would ask you not to take these elements, not because we want to be exclusionary, but because we want to be faithful to the warning that God gave, that you would not eat and drink judgment upon yourself. We also want you to be careful if you are one who proclaims Christ, but you have found yourself to be in a, a season of unrepentance, and even as you sit here this morning, your heart is not in a place of repentance. Repentance is simply just saying, yes, I'm a sinner, 
and I need God's grace. I need the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. And if you're not there, then don't take this table. But I say it every time that we come to the table. I, I say it, I want it to be heard loud and clear. Please remember, the good news of the table of the Lord is that it's for sinners. It's for you and me to remind us of the forgiveness and the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God that swims to us through the blood of Christ. And so come, take, eat, and drink. Paul also said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, would you bless these elements in the sense of not that these elements have any meaning beyond their significance of what they represent, but we trust and believe that you in a very mysterious way, O oh Lord, through your Holy Spirit, you are present nourishing us as we partake in this table together. So would you nourish us now by your grace? We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.